Welcome to Between the Lines, a monthly podcast that explores books for a better world, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. How lives and livelihoods change over time, and the forces behind those changes, is key to understanding development economics and addressing the issues of the Sustainable Development Goals. In this month's episode, we discuss the book How Lives Change, Palampur, India and Development Economics, co-authored by Himan Shu, Peter Lanjau and Nicholas Stern. It draws on a seven-decade-long study of a single village and helps to illuminate the drivers of change and increase our understanding of why some people do better or worse than others. Interviewing Nicholas Stern and Himan Shu is IDS Director Professor Melissa Leach. Now, what this book does in brief is to provide a really unique in-depth look at the shifting lives and livelihoods of people in this one village, economy, society, institutions, drawing on a series of rounds of data collection using a really interesting mix of methods. And in doing so, it tracks and reveals some key themes, both in people's livelihoods, but also in what's going on in India and indeed in theory and ideas in development studies and development economics. And it's this real interplay of villages and theory that is really extraordinarily, extraordinarily illuminating. And since reading it, I've been rec- recommending this book to practically everyone I meet who wants to know about development. So just, and you say this book's raising questions as much as providing answers, but yet on reading it, there are some very clear stories that do emerge about how lives and livelihoods are changing. And I wonder if you could tell us about some of those key dynamics that this latest study has picked up, because India has always been, rural India has always been such a focus for thinking and research in development and development yeah. economics. And I think some of what you found actually challenges some of the dominant images about the relationship between the rural and the urban, the formal and the informal and so on that 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 have dominated a lot of work. So could you summarise maybe some of those key messages that have come from these really detailed rounds of survey work and, and the more ethnographic work you've done? Let me try and then I'm sure Hilman Shu will develop. The big questions are the questions of the title, how lives change. If development economics is about anything, and it is indeed about a lot, it's about that question, how lives change. How do people get better off? How do people get worse off? On what dimensions do they get better off or worse off? How is that shaped by the functionings of the economies and societies and the institutions and the politics of the communities in which they live? That, after all, is the big question that we've seen in economics if we go back 200 years or more to the classics of Smith, Ricardo and Marx. They were asking, how does the growth process work and how does income distribution change with the forces and with the growth? And uh, you know, Marx was concerned with the division of surplus value between capital and labour and the very strong increasing returns notions. Uh, Ricardo was thinking about diminishing returns in land markets and, of course, then the distribution of income between the rentiers and the workers and, and the capitalists and so on. Those are the big questions, growth and distribution. And that's what we were after. I think we twist the tail of the profession just a little bit by saying, actually, maybe those questions haven't been at such centre stage or close enough to the centre stage 
in some of uh, work over the last few decades, but they're absolutely centre stage for what mm-hmm. we do. So one way of anchoring that in slightly more recent literature is you know, if you go back to Kuznets and Lewis and the way they were writing you know, soon after Second World War, they picked up those stories of uh, Smith, Ricardo and Marx, but they gave it uh, a story, or partic- well, both really, Lewis and Kuznets, stories of how people moved out of a backward, static, uh, almost pathetic uh, sector into a more dynamic, capitalist, profit-seeking sector, which was the modern economy. And that was their picture of how lives changed, how development occurred. And what we find is that some of those insights are interesting and helpful, but some pictures that it embodies are actually unhelpful. So can you elaborate a little a little bit? I mean, commuting is a word that, that comes up a lot. So yeah, what's, so, what's so going in, on here? In that Lewis story, people would leave one sector and go to another. Yep. Often uh, you think of a physical transfer from a village to a town. Mm. Uh, migration in that, so internal mm. migration. Uh, but we see much more people not doing either one job or another. They do many mm. jobs. And um, the population density of the Indo-Gagetic Plain is such that you can get to a town, uh, includes Palampur, of course, but it's absolutely mm. not unique to Palampur. You can get to a town in, in an hour or two. I mean, mm. whatever it is, you know, bike or bus or whatever it may be. And uh, that's the way it's changed. And uh, one way of expressing it is informal is normal. I mean, people go and find, and of course with mobile phones now, it's easier to find those kinds of jobs. So within a family, you would have four or five different sources of income without actual migration. And you see that that process of change, and Imanchu will pick up on this, but you see that that process of change has a profound effect on the income distribution. The old classical questions, how does the process of growth get driven and how does the process of growth, together with the forces that drive it, determine distributions of income? If you look at the very early years of our studies, when the process of change was about intensification of agriculture, particularly after Zemindari abolition, investing in your own land, investing in tube wells, not tube wells, investing in Persian wheels, then pumping sets and bore wells and so on. Uh, what you had is a process of mobility and entrepreneurship which led those people who had not yet built the irrigation facilities to catch up with those people who had. Mm. So that was a process of technological change, investment, innovation for them, of course, which led to catch up. But in the second part of the period, you have a process which leads to some people seeing those outside opportunities before others and then... It's a process where mobility takes you the other way as far as inequality is concerned. But perhaps, Imanchu, you'd want to develop that a bit. Yeah, I mean, so uh, just picking up on that, and uh, frankly, there is not much of a distinction between the micro-stories and the macro-stories of the structuralist questions. The big questions are also the small questions, and the small questions are also the big questions. Mm -hmm. So there is is no false, I mean, there is this kind of false binary that you either do this or... Mm -hmm. But what we have done, and I think what we, uh, the dis- our disciplines have also recognized, not just our own discipline of economics, uh, where we all the three of us come from, but also uh, other disciplines have recognized that things are far more complex than yeah. what we assume to be. 
And uh, when he's talking about informal is normal, it's not just uh, this versus that. It's something which is a gradation that we are trying to understand. It's a process that we are understand, trying to understand. And that process has its own complications, not just rooted in the nature of production structure changing, mm-hmm. but also the, how the society, society or the community itself is responding. And I think, look at economics, uh, the economics itself. We are talking about behavioral economics, yeah. which draws on psychology and how people are interacting. Or, for example, institutional economics. Both of them have been oh, and recently been recognized by the Nobel Prizes. Or when somebody is talking about, say, for example, Elinda Ostrom is talking about about, uh, the commons, for example. I mean, so we are talking about uh, individuals who are embedded in the system and are responding in different ways mm-hmm. to the resp- changes which are coming from outside, but at the same time contributing to these changes in uh, different ways. So I, when, I, when we say institutions are important, we are saying institutions are indigenous. They're not something which is, they, they are there, uh, they, there's a binary, I mean, a two-way uh, uh, interaction between uh, some of them. Caste, for example. Gender, again, something which we feel is something which is very, very uh, important in understanding how things are evolving, not just in terms of uh, economic outcomes. Mm-hmm. So what we, uh, what we have tried to do is not just to, and honestly, I mean, there, there are some answers that we think should be the answers. We are not saying that these are the, and there are people who can come up with different ways of expressing the same arguments and uh, building on, on those ones. But uh, we have tried to uh, come to some kind of an explanation based on our own uh, engagement with the village, which is fairly long. I mean, Nick has been there in the village for about 45 years and has been going to the village almost every year, except for some uh, years. And we have all been. And that has and that uh, being there and trying to understand, talking to people. And that's why the qualitative information is also mm-hmm. something that we've relied quite a lot on how people themselves uh, feel on, on those things. Mm-hmm. So uh, we hope this will generate a debate. We are not saying that, and there is uh, learning is never an end, never a never-ending process. So I hope uh, it does generate uh, at least some kind of a debate, not just in the context, but also in terms of our disciplinary boundaries. Maybe even some change in the profession. Yeah. Well, that, no, that's one of the things that really interested me, actually, about the book is that um, you've taken this close focus methodology, including a lot of qualitative and interview type techniques and observation alongside, alongside the more classic quant survey work. And of course, these are methods that one doesn't necessarily associate with with economics. I mean, I'm an anthropologist and, and it's often been anthropologists or rural sociologists who have claimed this kind of close focus village work. And I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you saw those disciplinary boundaries, because clearly this is a... This is a book that speaks to and challenges and takes us forward in theory and practice in economics and particularly around questions about institutions and individuals or theorizing around inequality. But how do you feel it also interfaces with other 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 disciplines? Is is and, and did you did you understand this as a piece of interdisciplinary work or is it actually a new way that economics should be doing its business? No, we are, we, are, we are not. I mean, I think economics has been interdisciplinary right from the beginning, whether you accept it or not. I mean, like it was, I mean, as long as we are part of the society and when you're talking about, we are not talking about economy changing, we're talking about lives changing. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about lives changing, lives are uh, in, governed by uh, social institutions, political structures and various different things. And nor is the fact that uh, our own discipline is recognizing, I mean, in economics, for example, we are now talking about experimental economics where people are uh, doing laboratory experiments in terms of behavioral responses. And so we are, uh, and I think uh, the idea of using qualitative information is not something that we are the pioneers. It has been something that has been used 
uh, in different ways uh, ways in uh, by different um, people i mean including economists yeah. but i what i do feel but i do feel that uh, the questions are more important methodologies are built around that mm-hmm. and some questions require a different kind of an answer and so there is no one way that you can only you have to necessarily use qualitative to for some things quantitative may do better a national representative survey may do better and i think our own advice would be or our own intra, uh, experience is that uh, methods uh, are obviously related to the questions and the kind of questions you are asking you probably will be better off using all different forms of uh, uh, tools that are available to uh, you whether it comes to sociology geography i mean we had lots of geographers in our team mm-hmm. and for example the uh, the gender for example women uh, survey that we had uh, which was led by deepa sinha uh, she she and we used multiple ways of it or for example when you are looking at welfare rankings inequalities we used participatory rural appraisal again which is something which neither uh, anthropologists in that sense have or economics have used it but practitioners have been using it in different uh, ways so we are using all sorts of things and finally the question is far more important than and and we don't yeah. see it as a boundary limiting us to the quest of knowledge on how lives are changing yeah, perhaps an example will help i mean as i mean is described we weren't worried about the boundaries we were just trying to pursue an understanding of how lives change mm-hmm. and how that society functions particularly in shaping how lives change so let let give you one example the uh, the jatab group which is uh, they're the old chamas or leather workers dalits the bottom of the pile uh were in the early days just agricultural laborers within the village very little options and no land or hardly any so at the mercy of the village economy and the powerful within the village economy and their income determined by large measure by the, the agricultural wage in in that village but then of course new options start to come and some of them start to get jobs outside the village not very nice jobs actually brick kilns which are pretty horrible but at least they function through Uh, some of the slack periods in the agricultural season and none of the people in the village could prevent them going and finding their jobs and they did it's entrepreneurship it's spotting an opportunity and taking a risk so they did uh, not huge rewards but at least it was an increase in income the more steady income so they um acquired the cash which enabled them to be more um credible as tenants the land inside the village because nobody's going to lend you at least land out to you because it's still most mostly not all sharecropping uh, unless you've got the resources to cultivate so start started to get some resources to cultivate but it needed more than that it needed the tractor to replace the bullocks and the he buffaloes mm-hmm. because unless you've got the draft animals in the earlier part of the period you couldn't be a credible cultivator and tenant and no one will who is higher than you will bring the draft animals to your plot of land because they certainly wouldn't let you do it because you might mistreat or overdo the draft animals and they wouldn't do it because they won't want to be seen as laborers for you but then the tractors come along you see and then uh what you can do if you've got a bit of cash is to pay the guy who's got the tractor to plow your land There he is sitting right up on the top of a high tractor. He's all right. He doesn't mind doing that. He's using his super capital equipment to make a bit of money 
off his farm. So what you've got then is the outside labour market influencing the liquidity, which then makes them credible tenants, but not quite. It needed the technological change and the movement away from the draft animals. And all this is about processes of accumulation inside the village. It's about labour markets outside the village. And it's about the caste relationships which allow people to do certain things. And unless you put those together, you can't understand what happened. Absolutely. No, that's a great story of the intertwining of the economic, the social, the technological. I mean, in many ways, one could title this book as a manifesto for development studies, not just for development economics. But that's another conversation. I wanted to ask you also about... We're tweaking the tale of development economics just a little more than we tweak the tale of other things. This is true. And you've got some great challenges to the narrower version of Mm. economic theory in there, which really make for excellent reading and all students should look at it, I think. But with a love Um, and involvement for the subject of development economics. Absolutely, absolutely. The breadth and depth is crucial, yeah. Totally. So what about new issues? I mean, there are probably many, but... It struck me that one of the things you pick up on in this book and actually say that this was not so relevant in the earlier studies is the whole question of environmental change in the Mm. environmental and climate change context. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, well, why that's become important. I mean, obviously, it's, it's become important because of global environmental change, but how it's altered the dynamics in the village or to what extent you've taken it on board as part of this study as different from others. The, um, there are a number of dimensions, as always, oh, in environment yeah. and climate. But let, let's start with the more environmental and go on to the mm. climate. I mean, they're interwoven and course, shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't pull them apart. But it, it, there's been a lot. This is, remember, this is in the, in the Gangetic Plain yeah. with very fertile soils, densely populated and very heavily uh, uh, cultivated. N- nearly all uh, grain crops and other vegetables and so on. Little bits of uh, of milk and pastoral, but mostly on the margins. And what's happened is there's been essentially, if you like, two sorts of mining going on. You've been mining the water because there's a water table underneath the Indo-Gangetic Plain. You mine it in the sense that it's actually an exhaustible resource. And what you've done in in the, what, what has happened in the Indo-Gangetic Plain is that water table has been driven down not just in India, but we're talking about, not just in that part of India, all over India and and beyond, but we're talking about this particular area. Probably the water table's gone from maybe 15 feet to 45. I mean, it's gone up by a factor of at least two, probably close to three is the the level that's gone down. And that means you spend more lifting. And uh, in the early days of just a Persian wheel where a child would drive uh, some draft animals around the round and round the wheel and the chain of buckets and you'd lift the water but then you know as it gets more as it gets lower you know you start to switch technologies and of course as they become available to 10 centimeter bores and uh, diesel pumping sets on top and then much more recently because electricity hasn't been in the village very long you've got some electric uh, tube wells but so the first thing is that that water mining has increased the cost of agriculture. The second is that soil mining, I mean, if you just throw on um, nitrogenous fertilisers, of course, you can see a result pretty quickly in drawing through the wheat or the rice or whatever it might be, but you start to run down the other features of the soil. 
and that certainly uh, happened. If you're careless with the irrigation, you can wash the soil off, and if you're running an electric pumping set, it's very unreliable. You leave it on overnight, then it comes on overnight, but you're asleep, and then you know you don't look after the irrigation properly. So water table down, um, soil depleting, uh, local pollution from uh, factories of various kinds, including paper paper mill. And, of course, the uh, burning, the cooking, mostly dung and charcoal and coal within the hut, so in-hut in air pollution, serious issue. Mm. So those kinds of issues are there, but they're getting yeah. more intense. Climate change itself is building. Each, the books seem to come out roughly 20 years apart, and each time we make predictions, sometimes mm -hmm. we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong, but we've tried to be transparent as to where we've got them right and where mm -hmm. we've got them wrong. I think that when we write the next one, 20 years from now, mm -hmm. maybe it's even 10 years, but um, if we write the next book a decade or two from now, I think one of our predictions will be that the threats of climate change are getting very close. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the water, if the ice and snow and glaciers on the Himalayas start to push back of course they are being pushed back if that accelerates as it almost certainly will then you will see water supplies becoming much much less reliable torrents followed by uh, drying up and if the monsoon starts to fail then you're in deep trouble and it could fail very quickly so I think that we haven't yet seen this happening very severely, but there are some straws in the wind. And my guess is that 20 years from now, if we look out, so that takes us, say, to 2040, and if we look out to the years 2040 to 2060, quite a short time in the history of work on Palampo, you, uh, you could get some very severe effects, and then it would be the whole of the Indo-Gadgetic plane. That's a scary prospect, I think it's also, though, excellent that there might be another study. I was going to ask you, is 70 years going to become 80, 90, or even 100? But I think, I mean, in the light of thinking about the future, I wonder if you could just finish by telling me what you think some of the key messages might be for decision makers. I mean, we've talked a bit about the implications for researchers and students, that there are powerful messages here about broadening out development studies, about the value of this kind of close focus, problem-oriented interdisciplinary methodology. But what does this say to policy? And in particular, aren't policymakers in the Indian context or more broadly going to be really challenged by dealing with the kinds of informality that you've picked up here? So what what should they be doing? Let, 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 let me pick up uh, a few of them. I mean, there are mm. many there in the messages. I mean, first is that the economy is changing quite fast. Mm. And uh, I mean, as Nick was mentioning about agriculture, I mean, the first wave of mechanization and irrigation did bring in more employment of labor. I mean, like cropping intensity went from one to two. I mean, double. So that's why the more labor was required. Mechanization also meant that the land could be uh, prepared very fast and harvesting could be done. And therefore, more labor was required. But now we are in a phase where labor requirement in uh, agriculture is going down drastically. Mm -hmm. It's happening all over the country as such. Mm -hmm. And uh, labor is being released from agriculture. Mm -hmm. or, or population is growing. Where do you find employment for these people? 
not just employment in terms of uh, normal uh, the good quality but even to basic diversification that's a big challenge countries have faced this throughout centuries our centuries are uh, full of i mean you uh, I mean, unfortunately india is not like some other countries where you can have a forcibly uh, population norms and therefore you restrict population growth or you have a hukou kaunda system where you restrict mobility of people you need to find ways where this this, this new youth who are coming out of agriculture has to go and find productive jobs a decent quality of jobs that's a big challenge and it's become a political issue you know in, in india it's a big issue the second question that i will uh, find is we have to and, and in this process i mean looking at this process uh, look uh, say for example a lot of the way that we have looked at the informal sector for example is uh, mostly as some kind of a people who are not good i mean the kind of employment is not good and they don't pay taxes and so attempt has been to basically bring them in the financial net bring them in the regulatory net bring them into and as seen as some kind of a so in the whole discussion we don't have the place for informal sector but it is the sector which is actually the mm. transition phase i mean it's something which absorbs the maximum amount of labor yeah. this way or that way and 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 how do we treat with this informal sector how do you make sure that your being part of the informal sector is not seen as a bad but something as an essential transition process of it and we need to have a better understanding of what informal sector means it's not just the casual workers it is also a large number of them self employed the petty producers and those need to be provided some kind of a support we don't have any credit policies working on those ones we don't have any uh, technology transfer policies working on them we don't have any policies of government support for this informal sector so that again is something which is a bigger challenge but there are three more things that i would uh, like to add to this one is the way we are looking at institutions i mean institutions of governance are not just one part of the institutions that we are talking about and the, we have reservation at the panchayati level where the now the head of the panchayat the village council is uh, reserved for uh, dalit uh, for one uh, for term and then in this women they bring in different uh, issues of governance at the local level and there how do you manage your concerns and how do you manage this whole uh, unity in the village or collective voice on certain issues and that is where the fourth issue comes in and point that we mention that the village has seen progress we are not saying the village is static but the progress in terms of education health gender and those kind of human development issues has been less than satisfactory mm-hmm. we would like it to be much faster because those are essential for further growth in the uh, uh, in the economic sphere but also in the social sphere we would like more women to be part of the workforce we would like more women to move out in the village we would like more more education uh, to be provided we would like children to be more healthy more nutritious no deaths in the maternal deaths we would like all these things to happen but that also requires a kind of an institutional arrangement but also public policy engagement where the society itself collective responsibility it can't be done only by the government the government has to find some way of dealing with that and we are finding those things which are being incorporated in there and the last point that i think where i will say and this is i'm not i'm not saying that there are lots of challenges which are there and the last challenge is ex- actually the issue which is how do we look at the whole issue of villages and rural india the point that we make here is that rural india is not a i mean don't we can't look at rural india and urban india as silos there is a continuum when does the rural end with the urban is we can't say that these are urban these are rural so there is a gradation which is there and as the world is getting more connected through communication mobiles through wireless and through also for some forms of uh, uh, information flows and the kind of uh, anthropologists will uh, mm. also appreciate the kind of uh, information flow that is happening but also economically when he says that there is within a half a uh, half an hour you can reach uh, urban areas and you can there are different ways of it now that obviously is changing the relationship between rural and urban mm-hmm. the notion of rural or the villages as a closed community 
or entity is no longer true villages are as much part of it and they are not only part of the neighboring urban they are connected to delhi they are connected to hyderabad they are connected to mumbai and they are also connected to london and uh, new york and i'm saying that, that 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 is something which is again we have to understand and policy has to realize that how is this transition happening that transition will happen how do you manage it and governments will have to be creative in managing this transition rather than using the standard uh, yeah. methods that are available that's a really important set of messages so look as a final question we talk about books for a better world this is a book that contrib- can contribute to a better world could each of you just in a final few seconds give me your key headline if this is going to contribute to a better world who needs to read it and why i think those who are working to try to accelerate growth and poverty reduction mm-hmm. those who are working to uh, make something of the sustainable development goals agreed in 2015 could benefit in thinking through um the kind of policies that uh, himanshu has just described yeah. if you think of sustainable development goals you know we talk about employment poverty hunger I- inequality pollution um gender relations you know, i've gone through probably eight or nine of the sdgs mm-hmm. but of which there's 17 um but if you want to understand how you can make a difference you have to understand how lives change you have to understand how people find ways out of policy, of of poverty how their willingness to take risks and their ability to spot opportunities is there but they can be greatly enhanced if they get support um through the health and the education and the yeah. credit markets and the backup uh, employment schemes and so on so i think those who are interested in growth and poverty reduction which mm. and the sdgs which i hope is a very large slice of the social science profession and indeed of the policy makers i hope they could get some benefit yeah Himanshu, um, who should read this and why? I, I, I mean, if you ask me, everybody should. Everybody, okay. I mean, that's I think. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something which will interest uh, not just social sciences. Somebody who is uh, a journalist, somebody who is a student of art, somebody who is. Uh, I mean, I think. I mean, as long as uh, we are talking about people in a system and in, in a society. Yeah. and sciences and people who are in sciences would be i mean the kind of scientific challenges and scientific innovations that are required to deal with the magnitude of problems that we are talking about mm-hmm. it is not just a problem of social sciences and uh, people who are in the policies yeah. i mean it has to be everybody yeah. and that's i i would say that it will interest somebody who is not non specialist also yeah what himanshu yeah. says prompted me to because it's very important what he just said we don't have the elegance of dickens and balzac not none of us would pretend to that but we are concerned with what they were concerned with mm. which is the human condition mm. how it changes what people can do to change mm. their lives so yeah. in that sense i thought how much you put it very well i would mm. underscore the everybody yeah one village with very important lessons for all humanity thank you so much himanshu and nick and everybody do read this book thank you thank you Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. 
Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published the first Wednesday of every month. It's brought to you by the Institute of Development and Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.